twice in the recorded words of Jesus Christ, he is angry. He is angry with his own disciples. For he's told them for the fourth time that he's going to the cross to die for them, and they're scared. So he says in John 14, beginning in verse 1, Don't you dare fear. You believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know the way. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Henceforth, you've seen him. You know it. Then Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. Let your, reasonable, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Amen. The man just finished his work. He was driving down the highway and he went down the ramp onto the parkway. And he said, at that moment, something came over me I never experienced before in my life. I felt as though I was dying. I didn't feel as though I was dying in a, a month or a year or in decades. I felt as though I was dying now. Never felt it Suddenly my cell phone rang and I, I didn't have the energy to pick it up. In fact, it amazed me that I could continue to drive. It was though all of my life, all of my breath had been sucked out. I felt like I was dying. Now this isn't a wimpy man I want you to know. He's not sick very often. He works out almost every day and he works with his head and his hands and his whole body. He's a strong man. He's a man's man. And yet he felt as though he was dying. He said, my cell phone rang again and I had the strength to pick it up. But I answered and the man said, your wife and daughter have been in a serious accident. Come as quickly as you can. And two hours after that event, he looked me in the eye and he said, do you think God was preparing me for something? What do you think? Years ago, I remember receiving a phone call from my aunt. She never called me before or since. Instantly, I thought it was my parents. What's wrong with them? 
Her next word brought comfort to my heart. She said, David, and I, he's my cousin. I thought, good, something's up with David. It can't be too bad. And then she said, he's committed suicide. And at that instant, I felt as, all, as though all the breath, all the life had flowed out of me. And I said to her, what? How? Why? We all wonder those things. Questions tumble out of our hearts at times like this. Why her? Why now? Why in this way? Why on that road? Why with those brakes? They were new. What about the seatbelts? Diane and Holly were sticklers for seatbelts. Jim will tell you, he rarely wears one unless he's with them. And why a dinner at church that night? That they were going to. Children are supposed to bury parents. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. And the shock of all of that is only eclipsed by the mystery of the event and anyone who stands up and claims to understand and be able to sort out all of those questions at a time like that is either a fool or a liar. Questions abound. Doubts assail. Why is the question of the day and the week and the month and maybe even the years? Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you today knowing that in the face of such uncertainty, there are sure answers. At least some of them. I'd like to speak to those today. Famous historian said, there are two magnitudes with which every person must deal. The first magnitude is the shortness of time. The second magnitude is the vastness of eternity. And if you're not a Christian here today, if you don't know Christ or trust Him, then the only magnitude with which you must deal is the shortness of time. If you are the Lord of your own life, that's all you've got. What you have here. And it's short. And you better hustle because this is all you've got. You better do everything in your power to live life to the fullest because when it's over for you, it's over. And it's short. I have a lot of friends in ministry that like to sort of beat up on non-believers. Tell them to quit doing this, quit doing that. Not me. If this is all they've got, go at it. Do you ever watch a basketball game when one team's down by 20 points? You know what they do, they press. That he had to go helter-skelter. That he had to file and attempt to get the ball back. 
And invariably, they always end the game 30 points down. That's the way the world is. Those who don't trust Christ must hustle and press because that's all they've got. I know what it's like to live like that. And most of you here know that too. We remember. But for the Christian, there's no fourth quarter. There's no shot clock. There's no game clock. For every Christian, there's another magnitude with which we deal. And that's the vastness of eternity. And you know something? In light of eternity, what's cancer? In light of eternity, what's a car wreck? In light of eternity, what is the loss of a precious little girl who trusted Jesus with her life? For those living without Christ, safety is the order of the day. You know people like that? Scared to go out of their house? Their house is falling down, scared to live in it? Jesus talked about that. He said, those who seek to save their lives will lose them. And all over America today, there are people who are dedicated to eliminating risk in their life. No white rice. White flight. Watch your LDLs. Increase your HDLs. Get ABS brakes. Make sure your IRA is paid up. And make sure above all else you seatbelt yourselves. But the truth is we can't eliminate risk. The chances are one out of one that everybody in this room will one day die. The psalmist says it this way, the Lord made us a little lower than the angels. You know what that means? That means every time you want to travel at a great distance, you've got to board a plane or a ship or a train or a car and risk death. God tied us down. There's no man that can run faster than 30 miles an hour. There's nobody that's been able to jump this high, 8 feet high this way, and 30 feet in length this way. God didn't make us with wings. And so we can careen around the corner on a rain-swift night. We can lose our brakes. Those living with the first magnitude. Hurry and safety is the order of the day. Time's running out. But for the Christian, time's not running out. We came to know Christ, but time ceased being. There's no need to worry. There's no need to save your own life because Jesus has already done it. Over 400 years ago, the framers of the Westminster Confession said it right when they said, He hath ordained whatsoever things come to pass. You see, Holly Long, even though she was only 12, was an heir to the second magnitude. She understood in her own way 
a way that's more profound than many adults that I know. The vastness of eternity. The Bible leads us to know that before the Lord created the universe, He knew Holly. He claimed her as her, His own. And those of us, and you've heard many of them today, speak of this. In 12 years of her life, we witnessed the reality of her love and trust for Jesus. So this morning, I want you to remind you of what Holly knew about the Lord. I want to review with you why she loved Him. And I want to demonstrate how Holly Ong lived up to her name. First of all, Holly knew above all things that God was big. She knew that there was nothing that God couldn't do. She first came to recognize it when she recognized that God became a man, Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and rose for her. Did you know that in the Bible there's a prayer book? It's called the book of Psalms, but actually it's a book of prayers. 150 of them. Did you know that 80 of them are called laments? A lament is defined by Webster as mourning aloud, complaining with conviction, crying out in grief and pain and anger. And think of that. Why would God put 80 laments in His prayer book? Because He knew that a lament is the purest form of worship. When you and I cry out to God in our pain, we're focused on Him and not us. A lament by definition is an admission that God is greater than you and you're ticked off at Him. You read the Bible and you find that nearly every primary biblical character in the Bible offers a lament. From Adam to Paul, they cry out to Him in pain and in grief. Even Jesus was a man of lament. The prophet called him a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief. But I also remind you that almost every lament in the Bible ends the same way, in praise and worship of God. That's what we see in Psalm 77. That's what we see at the end of the book of Job. Because when we cry out to Him, or we cry out against Him. What we think we need are answers, when in reality, what we really need is Him. His presence in our lives. I love what C.S. Lewis once wrote. God whispers in our pleasure, and He screams to us in our pain. So what's He screaming? He screams what Jesus screamed from the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He screams to us what he said to the prophet Jeremiah. I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to do you good and not harm. To give you a future and a hope. You say, how can you possibly say that on a day like today? Because I know that God is big. And Holly knew that. 
first of all. And then second, she knew he was good. You say, how can a good God take a 12-year-old girl? The same way a good God took his only son, 33 years ago. Saturday night, uh, talking with Diane and Jim, I reminded them of a story of a man who was walking down the street in a blizzard. He happened to look up and he saw a house and there in the house a light was on in the living room and he could see through the shears. There in front of him was a young boy sitting in a chair. Over that boy was what a man that looked to be his father and next to the man was a, a, a woman who looked to be his mother and she was weeping uncontrollably and as a man looked through that shear from the street he noticed that the big man was slapping the boy. So he pulled out his cell phone. He called 911. In minutes, the police are there. When they arrive, they go into the house with the man. The police shout, what's going on here? We have a report of child abuse. The father looks up at the police with tears in his eyes and he says, it's not that. You see, the doctor told us we have to keep him awake for 48 hours or he'll die. You see, what looked like abuse in the street was actually unconditional love in the living room. We always want to make judgments about God. Our judgments are always based on what we see and what we know. The problem is, when it comes to God, we don't normally see enough or know enough. How many times in your own life have you found that what you thought was good turns out to be bad and what you thought was bad turns out to be good? Ladies and gentlemen, it's perfectly fine to judge God, but use the measure that God gives us to judge Him, and that's the cross. What looked like the end was only a beginning. You know what the cross says to us about Holly? She's more alive today than any of us in this room. We live, live in the land of the dying. She now lives in the land of the living. She's more alive than any of us. Can you think of a greater gift than to give back to the one who gave her to us to begin with. Holly knew God was big. Holly knew God was good. Another thing she knew was God was in control. You know, God knew her before we did. He loved her before we did. He brought her into this world and He placed her on loan to this fantastic family and to us as a gift of grace. I want, to think, want you to think with me for two, about two things related to grace. First of all, her age. Now, I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I want to make a big deal out of this. The number 12 is huge in the Bible. Twelve in the Bible 
always represents the perfect rule of God in the universe. In the Old Testament, there are 12 patriarchs from Seth to Noah. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 judges. When God commands Solomon to build God a dwelling place on earth, a temple, he, he does it based on the number 12. When God speaks in the word about the city of God that is coming, the new Jerusalem, heaven, he speaks of it with dimensions that are factors of 12. When he speaks of the population of heaven, he uses the number 12 as a multiplier. In the Old Testament, 12 people were anointed for divine service. In the New Testament, Jesus selects 12 apostles. When Jesus speaks his first recorded words in the Bible, he's 12 years old. I don't want to make too much out of this. But can you imagine a better age to take a loved one to yourself than age 12? And that's exactly what he did in Holly's case. Then think of her name. Yesterday I asked our youngest daughter if she could describe Holly. Unlike me, she's a woman of few words. So I said, would you describe her for me? And she said, tiring. She had her in vacation Bible school and kids club. She said tiring, but then she added, she was so full of life and joy that she'd wear you out. You know what the spiritual meaning of Holly's name is? Peaceful. Then when you go to the Hebrew and you look at the word peace, which is shalom, it means more than just tranquility. It means wholeness, completeness, fullness, full of life. And that is what Paul is referring the Philippians to when he says rejoice in all things. Again I say rejoice. May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Now it's one thing to write that when you're sitting in an easy chair. It's another thing to write that from a Roman prison with a noose around your neck. And that's exactly how Paul writes those words. That's his context. He's talking about a fullness, a peace, a joy of life that only Christ can bring. Years ago, a young girl named about the age of Holly went to her grandmother's house. She was playing in the side yard, and she loved to play out there. And all at once, all of a sudden, she ran into the house looking for her grandmother. When she found her grandmother, she said to her grandmother, Grandma, I've got a question. Grandmother said, Yes, honey, what is it? She said, if you know where something is, is it lost? Her grandmother smiled and said, no, honey. If you know where something is, it's not lost. Why do you ask? She said, because your diamond ring just fell down the well. <laughs> and you know something? Every time that woman told me that story, there would be a huge smile on her face, and she did it with laughter. Because she valued her granddaughter a lot more than her dying. Now aren't you glad that we know where Holly is today? She has never been lost, ever. In fact, today she's back with the lover of her soul. 
who controls all events. Now I've known Diane and Jim for 20 years. I've known Jamie and Carly most or all of their lives. I was privileged to be the one who would present Holly in baptism. In my whole life, I've never known better parents. I've known some as good, but not better. Except one. I know one parent who is perfectly big, perfectly good, and perfectly in control. He's the Lord of both magnitudes, and He's the Lord who promises His people never to leave them or to forsake them. He never breaks a promise, not today, not Saturday, not tomorrow, not any day, because God always keeps His promise. Holly knew that. Maybe that's why she was so full of life. Do you know that? I think that's the question Holly would have us all consider. So think about that. As we stand and sing together, hymn number 493. It is well with my soul, written by a man who lost his family at sea. And he pens this hymn.